Welcome to the Whole of Ball podcast with me, Jay Forbes. Uh, this is a regular podcast on the world of football that I see and hear about, and, and it's a podcast about the world of football that I want to share with you, the listener. Regular listeners will know that we've been on some journeys recently on, on previous podcasts. Uh, new listeners might want to check out the Transfer Taxi. Uh, that's where uh, I, with the help of my magic taxi, moved players around the world from club to club, exploring uh, some of the many summer moves this year. Uh, so check that one out if you haven't already. Uh, last time out, we travelled the world in uh, in the podcast's very own helicopter, the Holycopter. Uh, we had a look at three teams from 26 leagues, I think it was. Uh, it was a fun journey of discovery around the world, uh, so go and check that one out. Um, this week, though, uh, we're going to stay at home in the Hole of the Ball mansion, uh, paid for by my uh, podcast empire. So thank you very much, listeners. But yeah, so we're going to head right into the library now. So the library's stacked full of books about the beautiful game of football. Uh, so we're going to uh, dive in and go around the library, library even, alphabetically, to discover some great football stories. We're going to look out for famous players, clubs, trophies, uh, etc. Uh, and also recommend a few books to read. So uh, let's go. Uh, so if we go to section A. Uh, so A for Asos... As, <laughs> these my pronunciations are terrible again. Association Calcio Milan. Uh, that's the Italian pronunciation. Uh, it's commonly referred to as uh, AC Milan, or simply Milan or Milan. Uh, it's a professional football club in Milan in Italy, founded in 1899. AC Milan was uh, is, uh, founded as a football and cricket club in 1899 by uh, two English expatriates, Alfred Edwards and Herbert Kilpin. Because of the English origins, the club retained the spelling of the city's name, Milan, as opposed to the Italian Milano. So uh, many year, for many years, the club's badge was just the, the flag of Milan, uh, which is uh, originally the flag of St. Ambrose. Now, this is very close, very similar to the, or the same, in fact, as this flag of St. George. So I, I always knew that they had the English connections. I just thought the uh, flag on the badge was um, the flag of St. George, but no, the flag of St. Ambrose. So that's an interesting one. Right, uh, we're going to move over to B. Uh, so here's a book that I've uh, I've read before. It's called Big Fry. It's uh, Barry Fry's autobiography. It got voted one of the worst football box but I really enjoyed this I found it on when I was on holiday once and uh, read it in a, in a in a week so yeah Barry Fry he was uh, <laughs> his reputation was the uh, the has been that never was was a great tagline for him uh, he had uh, playing stints at a lot of different lower league clubs and initially uh, at a higher level but then to a, came to a lower level it wasn't long before injury forced him to uh, hang up his boots and he took up managing so the uh, he had his first managerial job at a club called Dunstable, and the uh, the chairman had suitcases of uh, full of currency in his office with hitmen protecting him. So there's loads of funny stories in this book. You got to check it out. Uh, so he moved over to Maidstone and Barnet. Was involved with the notorious chairman Stan Flashman. More stories there that are great. Yeah, moved on to Southend. Uh, he was responsible for bringing down a young Stan Collymore. Uh, what a player he was. Uh, if uh, if the character himself was a bit of an idiot. Wasn't long before he moved over to uh, Birmingham under uh, David Sullivan and Karen Brady. So he's got some stories about them, about tax evasion, fraud, transfer bribes, all daft, loads of daft funny stories with Barry Fry, a proper football character. So yeah, check out that book. I recommend that one. Uh, so I'll put that back on the shelf. I'm going to move over to section C. So I see there's a book about uh, Carlos Kaiser. It's a Brazilian's fake footballer. This is a, a great story. Of a, of a chancer, a blagger, 
that uh, pretended to be a footballer and basically had a football career without be, ever being a footballer. Uh, it's a very unique uh, story. Uh, one to be uh, read in more detail if you like the sound of this one. He's described as the greatest footballer to never have played football. He'd uh, been associated with or played for technically 10 clubs, including uh, Brazilian clubs like Botafogo, Flamengo, Fluminense, Vasco da Gama. Uh, he never actually play, played Yeah. He avoided training by faking injuries and paid youth players to clatter him so he could fake in injuries. And uh, he just he just wasn't a footballer. <laughs> he said he he said he wanted to be among the other players. Uh, I just didn't want to play. Uh, it's everybody else's problem if they want me to be a footballer. Uh, not even Jesus pleased everybody. Why would I? So a <laughs> very interesting character worth reading up more on. Uh, so I'll put that one back. D. What we're going to uh, cover in section D. Ah, there we go. There's a book on Denmark. So Denmark won the Euros in 1992, uh, despite not qualifying for the competition. It's a strange one. Uh, they weren't even supposed to be there, but uh, they finished second behind Yugoslavia. But uh, the but with the breakup of uh, and warfare raging through Yugoslavia, they got their place. Uh, so the team uh, w- wasn't prepared at all. Found himself in a tough group with France and England and uh, Sweden. They drew the opening game with England, lost to Sweden, and then beat France uh, to manage to get through. After that, they went through uh, against Holland, upset the odds there. Two two in the first the first leg and that's uh, in the in the game. One on penalties. Uh, move through to the final against Germany. Uh, some quality players in that Germany team: uh, Andreas Bremer, Stefan Effenberg, Jurgen Klinsmann. Uh, but they managed to win. So a bit like the story of Greece years later. Just a, 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 always good to see the underdog win in any competition, but on a national scale for a team that weren't even supposed to be there. That's a special moment in Danish football. Right, I'm going to move on to E for a competition that's once known more widely as the European Cup, now the Champions League. Uh, so I want to tell a story in this book here about when uh, Aston Villa won the competition in 1982. Uh, so life uh, football did exist before Champions League and Premier League. Yeah, Aston Villa uh, beat Bayern and so, so to win the European Cup. Uh, and they went straight straight back home and took it to the Fox Inn in Tamworth near Leicester. Uh, it's a pub that's still there now. There was a Aston Villa play called Colin Gibson. Yeah, he got into a bit of an argument with... Uh, a Villa fan in the pub and uh, a man called Adrian Reed. He got annoyed with the players, <laughs> so he stole the European Cup, put it in the back of his car, and uh, he drove drove hundred miles away to Sheffield, where his student's house was, where, and took it to his mates. His mates drank beer out of the European Cup, dropped it down the stairs, <laughs> and then after partying for a while, decided the best ticket to the police and hand it in. Uh, so three o'clock in the morning, they, they took it to the police. The, the the police thought it was hilarious. The story, so they had a, a bit of a match in the uh, in the outside outside of the police station in the garage area. Uh, so they had a big match, and the uh, the police on the winning team got to lift the European Cup. The, uh, they wanted to take a picture, so they had to grab the scene of crimes officer. It was the only one was a he's the only one with a camera. So yeah, the scene of crimes officer taking a picture of them, uh, all with the um, with the European Cup, and they, uh, they they scrubbed out the face of the uh, of this Adrian Reed because uh, they didn't want to get him in trouble. They thought he was a nice bloke, and he'd only had a bit of fun, so he didn't get in trouble for stealing the trophy. And then obviously they get managed to get it back to Aston Villa. But uh, an interesting story about that uh, trophy that we've seen lifted many times across Europe. So that's an interesting one. Uh, so that's E. Let's move along to F. Uh, There's a book here that I've read. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. Uh, the Fear and Loathing in La Liga. Uh, and that's Real Madrid versus Barcelona. 
Uh, it's a great book from uh, the great Sidlow, Guardian journalist, uh, and also uh, producer, one of my favourite podcasts, uh, the Spanish football podcast. Uh, that's a great one. If you're into that league, listen to that. Half an hour, 25 minutes, uh, Sidlow, Phil Kitchamilidis, uh, have a great uh, wrap-up of the um, of the Spanish fixtures. Also give you some uh, uh, cultural insights into the game there as well. Um, yep, yeah, so that's uh, Sidlow. In that book, he, uh, he covers a lot of the history um, of the country in Spain and Catalonia, as well as the rivalry that's been going on years between Real Madrid and Barcelona. At the time the book was written, it was all about uh, Messi versus Ronaldo. Yeah, obviously, Ronaldo's moved on since then, uh, but um, it, the story is much more about the, much more than just those two. And there's lots of great players on both sides over the years, and it's really interesting read. So I recommend that one. Now, G, I'm going to find a book uh, about football in Germany. So let's have a look. There we go. Concepts of punk footballs discussing this book. Uh, so St. Pauli uh, are a great team in uh, currently in uh, Bundesliga 2, second division. It became a bit of a hipsters club or a, a club hipsters follow yeah, because of the, um, the way they carry themselves. Uh, they've got a bit of a, a an idea adopted from one of the fans, uh, a skull and crossbones flag. They're um, a well-known anti-fascist and uh, have banners with uh, displaying anti-fascist me- uh, messages and refugees welcome. Uh, they're very inclusive to people from different uh, parts of society. Uh, do a lot of work with the uh, uh, LBGTQ plus uh, community. Uh, so they're just a, a cool club uh, where they just uh, do things the right way and just, you know, none of the hate that has uh, scarred football over the years. Uh, so they've got a really good image about them and very popular across the trendies all, all over the world. But uh, with that, they've got a very good ethos and idea of what the club should be. But they could probably do with more focus of what they and what they're supposed to be on the pitch. If they had a, an ethos of playing style or direction, uh, then they could use their publicity uh, for all the positive things and uh, match it with a good football. And it could be onto a winner there. So uh, come on, St. Pauli, uh, make a bigger name for yourself if you're going to do good things in football. Right, uh, so we'll move on to H. H for hat trick. Uh, a story here that I've read uh, about uh, England defender Alvin Martin. Uh, so he's got a unique record regarding hat-tricks. Uh, in West Ham's 8-1 home win against Newcastle in April 1986, uh, he scored a hat-trick against three different goalkeepers. <laughs> That's a mad one. Uh, it makes him the only player to score a hat-trick in that way against three keepers. Uh, he scored his first against Newcastle keeper Martin Thomas. Uh, he was then replaced by Chris Hedworth to an injury. So he scored against uh, the sub-keeper as well. Uh, he got injured, so he was replaced by Peter Bursley, uh, strangely enough, uh, towards the end of the match. And he, uh, he scored against him as well to complete his un- unusual but remarkable hat-trick. Right, so let's have a look at uh, what we're going to have a look at next. So, um, I, Italy. Juve, probably, the, well, they are the most recent successful club in Italy. But this story about Juve is a, a tradition that they've had going back a, a number of years. Uh, they have a, a, a friendly, a traditional opening game of the season, a friendly against uh, Juventus Primavera, that's their youth team, and uh, Villa Parosa, just outside Turin. It's like a scenic old sports ground with a view of the mountains, uh, not far from the owner's uh, mansion. It's uh, the Agnelli family, the owner's. Uh, in the, the small town of Villa Perosa, there's about 4,000 people live there. 
so uh, yeah, they, they play this match in the first team, the youth team, and uh, at, at towards the end of the match, the fans storm the pitch so they can uh, get as much kit off the players and give them a hug and everything. So it's quite a tradition that they followed. Even though they're a massive football giant, good to see that they follow family tra- uh, well family traditions like that. So yeah, that's an interesting one. Not as interesting as this next one. I can't wait to tell you about this one. This is uh, section J. Uh, a famous person called uh, Josito Fernandez. Many people might not recognise that name, but you'll recognise the song that he made famous. That's been sung across the terraces uh, all across the world. There's only one Josito Fernandez. Doesn't have the same ring to it. Uh, but the song that he sung was at Guantanamera. Uh, so he's uh, Josito Fernandez from Cuba. Uh, Guantanamera means uh, woman from Guantanamo. Yes, that is the same place in Cuba that the US has a military base, but uh, this was written much further back in history than this. It recorded the, the, the song in 1929, but it only came popular in the, in the 60s, really. He, he had just the, the, the main chorus line, but they added the verses or, or official lyrics uh, based on uh, selections from the poetry collection Vers- Versos and Sencillos, or simple verses, by Cuban poet and independence hero Jose Marti. Uh, he died in battle against the Spanish in 19, uh, sorry, 1895. So a song that's sung by so many people, you only sing when you went in and all the other versions of it. And it dates back to the <laughs> Cuban war against the Spanish in 1895, the, the words. Yeah, Guantanamo is a, a great song. Just talks about his love for a peasant girl from the, the town or area of Guantanamo. So yeah, that's an interesting one I didn't know about. So moving on to K, Kaiser Motang. He's a South African creator of an interestingly named team, Kaiser Chiefs. The the band that borrowed the name are probably more famous than the team. But uh, yeah, it started with the Kaiser Motang. He's a proud South African from Soweto. Yeah, interestingly, the link between the team and the pop band is uh, Lucas Radaby. So he played for Leeds uh, and also the Kaiser Chiefs. So that's how uh, the lads from Leeds and their pop band uh, got it, got their name. Uh, Kaiser Motang himself uh, played for the uh, Atlanta Chiefs in the uh, US in the 60s and 70s and also played in South Africa. So when he returned, he uh, combined his name, Kaiser, and the Chiefs with Atlanta Chiefs to make the name. So they created a team in South Africa, and they're now the most successful team in South Africa. The team's still run by his family members, and he's still influential as well. They're still going at the age of 74. So to create your own football club and make it the most successful in your own country, that's pretty unique, that. So fair play to you, Kaiser. Right, going to move on to L, book here about Liberia, a country that not many people know many things about. But a lot of people probably know about one of his famous sons, George Weir. Uh, So he won eight cups and leagues across England, France and Italy. Uh, He was three times African Player of the Year, Ballon d'Or winner and World Player of the Year in 1995. The only African player to do that. And he's a fantastic player. Uh, And he's had an interesting life and career, apart from winning trophies at some top clubs across the the world. Uh, He's now the president of Liberia. Uh, if that wasn't enough, he's also got a rising star son. Timothy Weir was at PSG, he's now at Lille, and he's expected to do well. And uh, from his time living in, in America, uh, his son Timothy Weir, born there. Uh, so he uh, represents the US men's national team. So uh, I'm sure that his quality uh, in France will uh, 
make sure he's one of the, the, the big stars in that US team. So moving on to the letter M, uh, Martin Palermo. He's a, a name I didn't know a lot about until uh, a certain World Cup that I'll go on to. So he's... Uh, I remember hearing about this at the time. I couldn't remember the name of the player, but I remember this at the time. Uh, so it was a Copa America in ni- 1999. Uh, Martin Palermo missed a hat-trick of penalties. So can you imagine that? He misses the first one. Can they get another penalty? And he's determined to take the penalty to make up for the missing the first one. And he misses it again. And the third one, his teammates are begging him not to take it, but he has to take it to redeem himself. And misses again. So uh, uh, it must have been absolutely terrible for him. Uh, and, and he was pretty exiled from the Argentinian national team after then. Uh, so it was 10 years later that Maradona, when he was in charge of the country, recalled him to the squad, um, named him in the 2010 World Cup squad. Uh, well, he played he played and scored in the qualifiers, then made the squad for the World Cup in South Africa, that I mentioned. Uh, so that was his first World Cup. Uh, as he came on a, as a sub in a game and uh, scored in the 18th minute, uh, oh, sorry, the 89th minute, even more impressive, in his first match in the last group game uh, to put Argentina in the first place and, and win the group. Uh, he was 36, so he played his uh, first World Cup game at 36. It, during his career, so, um, he scored a goal every other game and about 500 games, so he's got a great record. Yeah, <laughs> it's an interesting one. We played for Villarreal at one point in Spain and suffered a double fracture of his left leg when after a wall collapsed while he was celebrating a winning goal, winning goal for Villarreal. Uh, but yeah, he's an interesting player. That He was exiled, but it was a, a really redeeming goal. The, the whole of Argentina were really happy for him that he managed to redeem himself in such a way at the World Cup. Uh, so the celebrations back home were unreal. So uh, it's always good to see uh, someone get that redeeming moment uh, in football as a way of doing that. Um, so moving on to N, Naeem. He's actually the, the first Muslim player in the Premier League uh, when he signed for uh, for Spurs from Barcelona. So yeah, yeah, he's the, the, the Premier League now is uh, a much more diverse league. People from all countries, cultures, religions, and uh, it's a great uh, melting pot of talent. One that's uh, echoed around the world, uh, the country really. So has a, a similar variety, and uh, it's all for the better. Uh, so yeah, he signed from Barcelona. He didn't quite make it there. Won the FA Cup with Spurs, uh, then he moved to Zaragoza, 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 however you say it. Uh, and this is where he had his moment that the Spurs fans were really happy about. He scored versus Arsenal. So uh, Naeem, or Mohamed Ali Amar, his real name. He scored a last-minute goal for Zaragoza and the 1995 UEFA Cup Winners' Cup final against Arsenal. He scored with a 40-yard lob in the, the final minute of extra time. Uh, so uh, that, that must have really pleased the Spurs fans, I'm sure, watching that. And uh, Every time he played Arsenal after that, they'd sing uh, Naeem from the halfway line. Uh, so if you're going to beat a seaman, or safe hands as they called him, he needed a good shout, uh, a good strike, and that certainly was. Uh, so moving on to O, uh, O for Ollie. That's a, a, a book that I've not read this one, but I've heard a lot of good things about it. Uh, it's from a crazy manager called Ian Holloway, uh, known as Ollie. 
he's uh, I've heard a few different things about him. Everyone knows his quotes and uh, how he's daft as a brush and says a few stupid things. Uh, but uh, I didn't realise when I read more about him, he's he's got kids that are deaf, so he's um, he's, he's learnt sign language to communicate with his kids, and he's fought really well uh, for the education for his kids uh, to make sure that they get the same as everyone else, just so they can live a normal life. So fair play to him, top dad there sticking up for his kids and making sure get the, they get the education he needs. So yeah, I mentioned his quotes. So I'll just I won't talk too much about Ian Holloway, but I'll mention one of his quotes. Uh, managing a league club is like making love to a mermaid. You should be aiming for a top half finish. So make of that what you will. <laughs> uh, we're on to P. P for Panenka. Yeah, I'll, this is the uh, the skillful penalty routine. These ones are always named after uh, players that perfected it, like the Cruyff turn, whatever. Uh, but uh, I've never heard of this guy before. He's uh, Antonin Panenka. He was, he was in the 1976 Euros for Czechoslovakia versus Germany, West Germany even. So the this technique, it's uh, where the penalty taker, instead of kicking the ball to the left or right of the keeper, just gives the a subtle touch underneath the ball, just chipping it up, just causing the ball to rise and fall within the centre of the goal, deceiving the keeper. So the keeper's expecting to dive left or right. You're just doing this little touch, it makes the keeper look stupid. Uh, but uh, he, he did that and uh, for the winning goal for the, uh, the Euros for Czechoslovakia against Western Germany. So to do that in a, in a moment of high importance, that's where that separates you good from the greats. People have tried and failed to do that. That's a hilarious uh, re- uh, results. Uh, but to try that, um, knowing the skill level involved, to try it in a big game, that's, uh, that's for big players. So that's an interesting development in the tactics and abilities of footballers. Uh, so we move on to Q. Ah, here's an interesting story that I discovered. So it, this is uh, Q for Queenie, or Keeney, Q-U-I-N-I. Yeah, so he's, uh, he's a player of Barcelona that got kidnapped. <laughs> it was just a crazy one. So this is March uh, 1981 gets bundled into a van by uh, two unemployed mechanics and a debt-ridden electrician. Uh, He scored twice in a 6-0 destruction of Hercules. Uh, So it was a Barcelona number nine. Uh, So they kidnapped him for 25 days. It was all over the news. It was a a crazy time in Spain with a a failed uh, political coup and regular bombings by the Basque terrorist group ETA. And the... uh, these kidnappers uh, took advantage of the volatile situation, demanded £1.8 million pounds to, to release their, their new friend, the captive. One of his teammates, Bern Schuster, initially refused to play until the striker was released. And he just and he gave a comment that was quoted widely as, Apart from legs, I've got a heart. Uh, I just want Queenie, Queenie back. He had end up having to carry on with it without him. Uh, so he's La Liga's eighth most prolific marksman. Uh, he was eventually freed and no ransom was paid. He was kept in a, a Zaragoza car park where he spent the majority of his time. <laughs> he didn't play, press charges. He said, oh, they treated me well and asked me all the time to be calm, assuring nothing would happen. <laughs> Crazy one. And uh, they, they caught the, uh, the people and gave him 10 years in prison. Barcelona's title hopes collapsed without their key striker. Uh, they, they only won one point from the four games he missed. Let's finish the season in fifth place. But despite all that, Keane still won uh, the Pichichi. Uh, oh, that's the uh, award given to the uh, the highest scorer in La Liga. Uh, not a bad season, that. Getting uh, still getting kidnapped and still finishing top scorer. Uh, so <laughs> I like to see anyone else try that. So moving on to R. Uh, moving around the library now. Uh, so uh, moving to R. Uh, this is for Romario. What a great player he was. Uh, 
Uh, it was a great story I heard about him uh, when he was playing for Barcelona. Cruyff tells the story. He says, uh, uh, One time Romario asked me if he could miss two days of training to return to Brazil for the carnival. Cruyff said, If you score two goals tomorrow, I'll give you two extra days rest compared to the other players. The next day, Romario scored his second goal in 20 minutes into the game. I ran over to uh, the coach and said, uh, uh, Can you sub me off, uh, coach? My plane leaves in an hour. <laughs> so he let him finish the game early and got a flight straight to Brazil. And when you've got a quality player like that, you can just turn it on when they want. Uh, you've got to treat these guys a bit differently to the teammates. So that's an interesting one. Uh, moving on to S. Ah, this is brilliant. Uh, this is my favourite mascot. In the whole world of football, uh, Super Pepino is the Leganes uh, Spanish club mascot. He's uh, the Cucumber Knight, he's called. Uh, <laughs> he's sort of a crafting a teenage mutant hero turtle, a Zorro, and uh, a cucumber. <laughs> uh, Leganes are nicknamed Los Peperinos, or the Cucumber Growers, in reference to the city's uh, agricultural history, uh, supplying fruit and vegetables uh, uh, to the people of Madrid. So that's where the, uh, the mascot comes from. There was a great video on Twitter recently of uh, Super Pepino met up with uh, his transatlantic cousin, Mr. Dylan. Uh, there's an American baseball team called the Portland Pickles, and their mascot is a pickle called Mr. Dylan. And uh, the video of them meeting, it was like a long-lost family reunion where they were hugging each other and giving them a stadium tour and having loads of fun together. That's a brilliant video, that. Uh, just made me love Super Pepino even more. Uh, so moving on to T, we've got around this library quite fast. Uh, so we're on to T, and this is Tiki Taka. Uh, so this is a, a type of football, a style of football, uh, predominantly played in uh, in Spain. Uh, it's characterised by short passing and movement, working the ball through various channels, maintaining possession. Uh, it's influenced by Johan Cruyff and adopted by Spanish sides and the Spanish national team itself. And it's copied by many others. Changed the thinking a lot about the traditional positions of players and um, the play changed a bit more zonal rather than the, the old structure of formations. There's other examples of this earlier in history, the Schalke's spinning top in the 30s and uh, Ajax total football has some similar, similar styles to this. Uh, the phrase tiki-taka, which is originally a Basque phrase, means uh, taking quick light steps. Uh, so I think the uh, Peps Barcelona are probably... Uh, and the Spain national team that, that won uh, the World Cup uh, and the couple of Euros. Uh, I think they were the best um, uh, performers of tiki-taka style, but that certainly left its, uh, its imprint on the world of football. Moving on to you, Up Pompeii is a book I came across. I heard a podcast where the author uh, gave a, an interview about this book, and it's on my uh, list to, to read. It's, uh, it's about his... Uh, well, let me tell let, tell the story as if uh, as as the author Paul Watson tells it. So he says, uh, after one too many late night discussions uh, over a beer, uh, football journalist Paul Watson and his mate Matthew Conrad decided to find the world's worst national team, become naturalised citizens of that country, and play for them. <laughs> so they had a, a joint by your dream of playing international football and winning a cap. So they thought they they could uh, get a cap this way. So the uh, Wikipedia eventually led them to Pompeii. It's a tiny remote island in the Pacific, and the uh, the long defunct football team was described as the weakest in the world. So they thought that was a good place to start. 
So after they contact the Pompeys, FA uh, discover that they're not going to get uh, um, be able to play, but they do need leadership. And uh, journalists have also had uh, coaching qualifications. Uh, so uh, Pony's mate Matt uh, went out and travelled thousands of miles, uh, leaving behind jobs, families, and girlfriends to train uh, a bunch of novice footballers uh, who didn't really understand the rules of the game. So this is a, a really I've, I've heard some of the stories about how you negotiate the. Uh, the the cultures and the climate uh, so it's fascinating I can't wait to read all this uh, so that's up on pay uh, so on the book it says uh, it shows how the passion and determination of two young men can change the face of football and the lives of total strangers on the other side of the world so that's one uh, I'll be reading uh, so the next one V uh, what could we discuss about football that possibly begin with V uh... Yeah, that's the sound of a Vuvuzela, uh, from the, uh, made famous by the South African World Cup in 2010. Uh, it's also known as a lepatata. It's a long plastic bugle-type instrument. It makes a loud, monotone noise. <laughs> at one metre, it's been uh, measured at 120 decibels. Oh, it's, so, it's so annoying. I, I like it because it's so annoying. To any game uh, you watched uh, that World Cup, you know, I, I end up watching some games with the sound off because it's just it's hard to put up with. Uh, it's been banned by a lot of stadiums because uh, of hearing loss and because they're just so awful. <laughs> uh, but that uh, is an interesting uh, thing that made a, an impact on football. Moving on to W. Uh, w, uh, this gives me an excuse to talk about a German team I love the name of, uh, Wurzburger Kickers. Uh, they're a third division German team that. Uh, they sound like uh, something off a modern menu, really, don't they? <laughs> uh, any sides? Yeah, I'll have the Würzburger kickers, please. <laughs> uh, they're from uh, Bavaria, uh, over a hundred years old club. And interestingly, the uh, the stadium, the Randerracker Strasse, was also it was completely destroyed by a bombing raid during the Second World War. And um, the the nickname is Rothosen, Red Shorts, which is strange what they call Red Shorts because they're playing red shirts and socks as well. Interesting. Yeah, so X, and there's only one player or football thing that I can talk about with X, has to be Javier Hernandez Cruz, or Javi, uh, for all all football lovers out there. Uh, He's uh, highly regarded for his humble persona and team ethos. Uh, Xavi is viewed as being the embodiment of tiki-taka, the style of passing style of football I just mentioned. Uh, he's uh, widely considered to be one of the greatest midfielders of all time, considered to be the greatest Spanish player ever. He played over 500 games for Barca and 133 times for Spain, won 31 trophies, including eight leagues, four Champions Leagues, two Euros and a World Cup, so not bad. Although he was, uh, he, he was initially inspired by... Uh, uh, compatriot playmaker Pep Guardiola at Barcelona. Uh, uh, as a child, uh, Xavi watched a lot of English football, so he, he once uh, quoted as saying that he looked up to midfielders like John Barnes, Paul Gascoigne, and Matt Letizia. So they're players I enjoyed watching in the early stages of the Premier League. It's interesting to see that they had an impact uh, on a player like Xavi. Uh, so uh, we're nearly nearly worked our way through this library now. Uh, so if we move on to why. Uh, so uh, we're going to talk about Young Boys, the football team, uh, or Young Boys Burner Sports Club. Uh, it's 121 years old. Uh, it was initially named to min- mimic uh, the Basel Club, Old Boys, because uh, they wanted to uh, be a club that would prioritise youth over age. Uh, ends up sounding like a strange name now, Young Boys, but they uh, 
Uh, interestingly enough, at their ground, uh, I mentioned to someone in Pat Valois earlier, uh, their ground was used as a potato field <laughs> during uh, World War One. Uh, after that, they uh, moved to uh, a stadium called the, the Wankdorf Stadium. Nothing funny about that name. Uh, Wankdorf Stadium. Uh, they changed the name to Bernie Sport, Bernie Sport Club Young Boys, or BSC Young Boys. Uh, and the stadium is now called the Stade de Suisse but still keeps its original name of Wankdorf Stadium. Uh, they nearly went bust and lost all their plays in 1999. Uh, about 20 years later, they've just won the second title in a row and they look pretty unstoppable. So that's pretty pretty decent that they, uh, 1999 is not a long time ago and uh, they could have gone completely out of business. And to start with no players, start from scratch and be the dominant team in their country now, uh, especially with another great club like Basel in that league, uh, uh, they had a lot of Champions League experience, uh, so they've done really well there. Uh, so finally, the uh, the last stop in my tour around the, the library uh, is a book called Zonal Marking. Uh, so Zonal Markings, uh, written by Michael Cox. He's a very interesting, very detailed journalist. Uh, quite like reading his stuff. Uh, so in this book, he uh, investigates and analyses the major leagues around Europe. Ticks a box from box from me. Uh, he's looking at the uh, the impact over specific time periods uh, that e- each uh, country has made on the global game. Uh, it's, it's entertaining, packed with uh, different wonderful anecdotes. There's another box tick for me, so I'll be reading that, and uh, must be I'll probably be mentioning some of those anecdotes on here again. So it's the first book of its kind to take a modern uh, overview of European football. This is an interesting one for me. It says here that it, uh, it shows how much the international language of football can be shaped by a nation's unique identity. So I, I've often thought that, that when you see different uh, cultural aspects from different leagues. Uh, I know foreigners have, have commented in the past that they're always amazed at how much a good tackle gets cheered in England, whereas uh, in, in Spain, for example, if you have to tackle, it's because you've already made a mistake, so it's nothing to celebrate. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, different things that across different countries, and that's one of the reasons why I like following football from different countries. Uh, so I've really enjoyed that. So uh, uh, I'll leave my uh, librarian to tidy up after me, and I'll just uh, uh, retire to the lounge. So yeah, uh, thanks for joining me on another podcast here, uh, the Whole of All podcast. I'm going to be doing another one soon. Uh, I want to look at the um, at the Champions League. So I've got a few ideas for podcasts, so uh, stay tuned to see what I come up with next. Uh, I want to look at the Champions League and uh, some of these bizarre teams like uh, have strange names like, well, this is Europa League team, Dude Lounge. And, uh, but yeah, the uh, Champions League has a lot of strange teams that are not your Bayerns, Barca's and Real Madrid's of this world. I hate that phrase. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I'm going to be uh, covering that. I'll also be returning to a style of the podcast I did initially with the different weekly aspects from games to watch and podcasts to listen to. So have a listen out for that. I've enjoyed doing this podcast. I hope you have too. Oh, sorry. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Uh, and I'll see you soon. So thanks for listening to the Whole of the Ball podcast with me, Jay Forbes. Thank you.